The Gist is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Try the new Squarespace 7 and get 10% off when you visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST. And by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 6th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The good news for me, for you, for everyone who drives is that oil prices are low. So does this mean that oil producers have stopped production? Hell no, they're still a pumping, but here's what they are doing. They're storing this current crop of Texas tea at low, low prices. Oil is being stored away. Now, oil and water might not mix, but think of this as a rainy day strategy for the oil companies. The Wall Street Journal today reports producers are pumping nearly one and a half million barrels a day more crude than the world needs. That means putting oil in storage that could be there for years. Oh, man. Imagine running a 2015 Camry on 2014 oil, or maybe oil will be prized like wine. Ah, sweet bouquet, slick nose, pairs well with seafood or running an autocracy. Or maybe vintage oil will be the cool thing among hipsters, like sold in the Salvation Army and you'll be in this guy's car and he'll keep stalling. No, no, man. I put some four-year-old oil in there. It barely makes the car move, but it brings me back to the heady time of Imagine Dragons' second album. So where do they put the stuff is the question. They put it in tanks. There's this uh, town, Cushing, Oklahoma. It's sort of where all the oil flows through. And they have a combined 6.6 million barrels a day of crude stored there. 400 Olympic-sized swimming pools of oil. See, that would make me want to watch the Olympic synchronized swimming events if it took place in oil. Uh, I assume they are synchronized there, Chuck. It's hard to see. They're covered in a gooey blackness. You can store oil in a salt cavern. It's an actual cavern, a natural cavern that can hold 5 million gallons of oil. You can lease an oil tanker, a tanker that doesn't go anywhere, just floats with a lot of oil in it. That's a little expensive, but like if the tanker has to go somewhere, you know, fuel's easy. The oil companies, will they stop pumping oil? What about that as a strategy? The journal has considered the possibility, but refuses to classify it as separate from the trend of just storing oil. Here's how they write about the idea of not pumping so much oil. More producers could be forced to shut their wells, effectively storing the oil in the ground. On the show today, we've got gamers, goofy video game players who like to wisecrack as they play video games. All right, you say you're just describing every 14 to 28 year old guy in America. No. I am, in fact, describing a very thin slice of funny gamers who have turned their jokes into hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in income and millions of YouTube subscribers. And in the spiel, 55,000 pages of what? But first, a dispatch from the first days of the Boston bombing trial. Today, The Gist is sponsored by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Not exactly new. It's been going on for quite a few weeks. It is about four decades, three murders, and a rich guy who refused to speak until now. It airs Sundays at 8 on HBO. It's by filmmaker Andrew Jarecki. You might know him from Capturing the Freedmen's. The Jinx exposes long-buried information discovered during a seven-year investigation into this series of unsolved crimes. Durst cooperated. He worked with Jarecki. 
Jaraki, and Durst has consistently maintained his innocence. He's free to this day. The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. Jahar Sarnayev is guilty of using weapons of mass destruction to kill three people and injure hundreds of others and using a firearm to kill an MIT police officer. Now, normally, because Sarnayev is on trial and there is a presumption of innocence in the U.S., I, as a newsman, would say something like, he is alleged to have done this or he is charged with these crimes in the Boston Marathon bombing. But Sarnayev's own lawyer, in her first paragraph before the jury, admitted her client is guilty, meaning this entire trial is only about the question, does the younger, does the surviving bomber deserve to die? Seth Stevenson was at the trial. He's back now. He's covering it for Slate. Hello, Seth. Hi, Mike. So this was a tough, this is a tough assignment for you, wasn't it? It is not pleasant stuff to sit through those last two days. I mean, we watched, the last thing we watched at the end of the day, Thursday, was uh, William Richard, the father of uh, Martin Richard, the eight-year-old who died, describing watching his son die, watching his, his daughter lose a leg. Um, it's witness after witness describing the worst 30 seconds of their lives, you know, when that bomb hit, what happened to them, what happened to their loved ones. It's tough to sit through. I mean, that, that's our job, and I don't think we should really complain too much about mm-hmm. it, given what those people went through. Um, Jahar is also sitting through it. You know, he's looking right at the witnesses and or actually he's not looking at the witnesses as some of the witnesses have said. He doesn't really make eye contact with them or engage with them. And he and I have to wonder what's going on through his head as he listens to these people talk about how he killed their children. What is the legal reason that we're doing the guilt phase if the guilt is already admitted? So the next phase will be the penalty phase. Mm-hmm. And presumably this jury will find Jahar guilty, especially given that his own lawyer used the words, it was him in her opening statement, not something you usually hear from a defense attorney. So once they find him guilty, then they'll move on to the penalty phase where the jury will decide whether uh, he'll be executed or whether he'll have life in prison without possibility of parole. And the big conflict in this trial between the defense attorneys and the prosecution has been uh, how much of the evidence that's going to go towards whether to kill him or let him live is going to happen in this guilt phase. Presumably, this should just be about whether or not he committed the crime. But in fact, they're already bringing in what they call mitigating evidence and aggravating evidence about how diabolical this crime was um, or uh, about why he did it. Now, the judge has ruled against mitigating evidence. So there's a couple things going on. Some is allowed. and Maybe you could talk about what kinds are allowed. But also, there's the subtle sneaking in of mitigating evidence or damning evidence that is allowed, but really is going towards the jury's perception of the defendant as opposed to, you know, just deciding on the facts of what he did. Sure. Judy Clark, uh, Sarnayev's defense attorney, in her opening statement, she started talking about the influence that Tamerlan, uh, Jahar's older brother, had on Jahar. And this is her entire defense is that Jahar had been taken under the wing of Tamerlan and influenced by his dominant older brother. And the second she started talking about that, Judge O'Toole interrupted her and said, we're going to hear very little evidence uh, about Tamerlan's influence on Jahar during this part of the trial. But she sort of plowed ahead and kept talking about um, Jahar being a regular kid and how it was Tamerlan who was looking at death and destruction on the internet in the Middle East, whereas Jahar was looking at Facebook and girls and cars. So she, right from the start, Judy Clark, and this is her entire strategy. She did this for, with Susan Smith. She did this with the Unabomber. She tries to uh, get uh, her guilty clients 
life in prison instead of execution. And she started it already. Um, and on the other side, the prosecution is doing the same thing. The prosecution is bringing in these witnesses who are talking about how torn apart their lives were by that day at the marathon, who are giving this very moving testimony about watching their loved ones or friends die. Um, and it's not simply going to uh, the guilt of, of Jahar, because we have videotapes showing him at the scene. I mean, if we were strictly trying to prove he did this, it would be different kinds of evidence. But we're getting very emotional, moving testimony, and it's it's designed to elicit certain feelings from the jurors towards Jahar. Okay, so, but I do wonder if after a while there will almost be a numbing effect, and if jurors will say, well, yeah, we get it, this was horrible. Like, it's as horrible as horrible can be, but if it was 10% less horrible or 30% less horrible, that doesn't really weigh on whether this guy deserves to die. You know, I, I would think that when you make a death penalty verdict, I mean, you can maybe tell me what the law says. You go by what the actions were, but you also go by what the motivations and what kind of person you think the killer was. Sure. And I think we'll, we'll definitely really get into that in the penalty phase. But one thing that Prosecutor William Weinreb talked about in his opening statement um, was videotape they have about 20 minutes after Jahar's bomb went off, Jahar in a Whole Foods shopping for milk. Um, and he bought a milk. And not only did he buy milk, he then exchanged it for a different milk when he decided he wanted a different milk. And the idea that Weinreb was putting across to the jury was that this guy's so callous, so unaffected by the things he'd done, um, that he could just go shop for milk right after he you know, killed these people. Um, the other thing that I think is not playing in Tsarnaev's favor is his body language, his affect. And I, it's, we don't want to read too much into this and impute too many thoughts to him based on the way he's holding his body. But uh, the defense yesterday tried to get a motion to shut down one of the cameras in the courtroom. It's the camera that looks directly at Jahar face on, the same view that the witnesses get while they're in the box. And the reason that uh, defense attorney Brock gave for shutting down the cameras was, he, you know, they want privacy when they confer with Jahar. But the real reason, if I read between the lines, is because there's been a lot of media coverage of Jahar's body language and a lot of it based on uh, in the media overflow room where a lot of us sit, we can see this head on view of Jahar and the way he holds himself while the testimony is being given uh, or in between witnesses. And he's just very relaxed. I mean, he's he's fiddling with his beard. He's tapping his toes. He leans way back in his chair. Um, on the first day, he wore an open collar shirt with two buttons undone, you know, kind of like a Hollywood look that just seemed wildly inappropriate in a certain way for the opening day of testimony and in, in, in something this serious. And I don't, I, the jury gets a very clear look at that. I mean, they, they can shut down the camera so the media doesn't see it, but the jury can see the way Jahar is holding himself. And, he, you know, again, you don't want to impute too much to what he's thinking, but the way he holds his body certainly doesn't suggest that he's feeling a lot of remorse or that he's paying a ton of attention to what the witnesses are saying or giving them a lot of respect. Do we, and, and to be clear, the cameras are there. Not No one's seeing it except the media overflow room. That's why the cameras are there? This is just closed circuit TV. You can only see it in the courtroom. The public can come in and watch in these rooms. Uh, um, the room I'm in is all media. Um, and there are cameras around the courtroom, You know, some on the witnesses. Uh, but there's that one view of Jahar. And, and, and Brooks' complaint was that observers in the courtroom who sit behind where Jahar sits in the, in the back of the courtroom can't see that view. It's only people in the media overflow room who see that view. And he wondered, why do they get this sort of privileged view of Jahar? So in the next week, what does this trial hold and what are the next things that we should look uh, for beyond, you know, laying on of detailing the horrors of that day? 
I think we're going to hear from some more victims and some more family members probably uh, would be a guess. We don't know for sure. And then I think we're going to get into um, some of the more did he do it evidence that the government has to lay out. I think we're going to see more video of Jahar at the scene. We've already seen some. We're probably going to hear more about the gun that Jahar um, obtained that was used to allegedly used to kill the MIT police officer. Uh, we haven't even heard about that crime yet too much, or the carjacking uh, uh, of the Chinese man who had the Mercedes SUV that they that uh, Jahar and Tamerlan carjacked. So there's a lot more just sort of nuts and bolts evidence that has to get out there before the jury can come to its verdict. Seth Stevenson is covering the Jahar Tsarnaev trial for Slate. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, Mike. In a second, you're going to meet a trio of 20-something-year-olds, and sometimes I think that those guys are just born knowing how to do things like play video games and make videos and build a website. I'm not, and maybe they're not. And if you're not, or even if you are, and you even have some fundamental skills, but you just want to make it right, and you want to make it good and simple and powerful and beautiful, the only place for you to turn is Squarespace. Squarespace makes the process really easy. They have responsive design, a lot of drag and drop technology. But let's say something goes wrong. They're there 24-7, live chat and email. The terms of the offer, pretty straightforward. For $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. Every website comes with a free online store. There's this thing called Cover Pages, which allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. So start a trial with no credit card required. You can build your website today. When you do decide to do that, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GIST. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So let's talk metrics for a second. Audiences, big audience. What are some media properties with big audiences? Well, the New York Times has a daily circulation of 2.1 million, a good rating for a basketball game on a Friday on ESPN. They'd love it if they got 2 million viewers. Here are some I just pulled up Tuesday shows ratings. ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. got 4.48 million viewers. The Mindy Project, 2.13 million viewers. Fox's New Girl, 2.53 million viewers. Or this wasn't Tuesday, but a lot of attention given to that new Will Forte show, Last Man on Earth, that got 5.75 million viewers. Well, now I'm going to talk to a guy whose YouTube channel is subscribed to by 6.4 million viewers. And the number one video that he has on that YouTube channel, the most viewed, has been watched by 14.5 million viewers. His name, actually, we'll call him KYR Speedy. That is correct. And the Speedy is SP33DY. He's a, well, Speedy, what do you do for a living? I make YouTube videos, playing video games for a living. It's a ton of fun. I really enjoy it, so. So you are a professional video game player or a professional game recorder of you playing video games? It would definitely be the latter. I... There's people that do do the professional gaming side of things, but I basically make videos and try to entertain people the best I can. Do you know the show Mystery Science Theater? What was it, 3000? I'm not familiar with Yeah, that okay, now. so I just will put my cards on the table. I am a, a man of 40, and I cannot relate to this at all. <laughs> but taking a step away, I analogize it to something I can relate to, which is there used to be this TV show of three guys sitting in the front row just kind of goofing on bad movies. Oh, Essentially, this is what it is, except since you're playing the game, you could dictate the motion of the movies. I believe I do know what you're talking about yeah. now, and I, yeah. I, that's exactly what it is. It's us commentating on what's happening in the game, having good laughs at what's going on. That's pretty much what it is. Why do you think people like you so much? That's what I... 
that's what we're even trying to figure out. That's the crazy thing about it is it must be my personality. I don't personally see it, so it's something about me. It's entertaining to people, and I really appreciate that they watch me. He needs to die for that, because my car is not looking too good. What do I want to kill him with? Do I have a silencer or anything? Oh, yes, I do. He's already dead, though. But a few extra shots don't hurt. Alright, let's get back in here. Luckily, I have 100% armor on this thing, and I don't think it... Actually, 80%, because I can't afford 100. If I can't buy it, it's not... Oh. Jesus! Okay. Car's not looking too good, even though... Okay, this is... Okay. This is bad. This is bad. Alright. This is not going... I don't even know what I was saying anymore, because that dude just completely ruined my train of thought. And I'm not sure... So why is this a career, that? not a hobby? Give me a sense of the size of it. Well... When you have a ton of people watching, you earn revenue off of it, so it comes to the point that you can sustain your income off of just making YouTube videos. And how much? Um, it's in the mid-six figures. All right. This is your job? Yes. All right. It's going to be your job for how long? As that, long as someone will keep watching? That's the thing. It's a, it's a type of thing where you never know how long it's going to be. You have a small window, and if you want to make the most of it, you better get to doing it quick. And it could spitball into something that is huge over time, but you never know. It could end tomorrow, even. Which games, do, which games do you play? Grand Theft Auto V, Call of Duty, Counter-Strike, all the big names, Minecraft. And you also, there's a lot of your videos with the equivalent of Pictionary, a game called, what is it? Draw My Thing. Draw My Thing. Very fun game. This is a game where, yeah, there is, I mean, it is a video game because, you know, you're interacting with graphics, but the assignment will be draw a unicorn. Yeah. And then you have to draw a unicorn and your friends guess what it is. Yeah. These are, and these are some of the more popular videos because they yeah. allow you the opportunity to be funniest. Dino, Dino. That color just always scares me. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, it's Speedy's guys are on point, but that dude's eyes are fucked oh, up. Okay. I mean, no, I always do. It's the stanky leg, you dumbass. I always like to put my eyes in stupid ways. Do the stanky leg. Do the stanky leg. So you, a couple of your friends, part of your crew, and that's what you call it, are here. Why don't you introduce these guys? Um, I have two of my friends with me. One is named Joe, and he does a channel called Jehovah's Witness, and then I have a friend named Joel, and he does the channel Nobody Epic. Hello, guys. How'd you get into this? Um, this is this is uh, Jehovah's Witness here. Yes, this is me. Uh, basically, we just kind of stumbled across each other. I met Speedy through a uh, kind of a, a YouTuber meetup type thing. It's, it's what's called an open lobby. Um, and we met through a friend on that, and uh, basically we just became friends. So you didn't play, it wasn't that you were playing games against each other, you were already somewhat established YouTube stars, figures? At the time, At the no. Time, no. I mean, oh, okay. we, were, we were doing it on, a, on more of a hobby level. Yeah, I had 1,000 subscribers when I met this guy. But but the thing is, it wasn't that you were playing a uh, multiplayer online game where you met. You met because you were doing YouTube. Correct. Yes. 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 And what game did you first bond over? That was Modern Warfare 2. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Yeah. One of my all-time favorites, actually. And what's, what, where are the elements of humor in that game? It's mostly not the game that we make fun of. I mean, some of it, I, I guess, does come down to that. But I think most of it, uh, like he was saying, it's kind of getting away from it now. But there was a, a huge element of, like, in-game trash talking. Yeah. It's mostly, I mean, you're, this is a comedy show for people. It's sense of what humor we do? is what yeah. people are looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is there a niche of this where people want to improve their gameplay and see excellent players and get tips? That's exactly what it is. So there's right. professional gamers. There's people that do tips and tricks. There's people that do funny moments. There's all different types of things. And then if you scan all over YouTube, there's people that do beauty channels. There's gaming. But how good do you have to be? I mean, if you were terrible, does that make it 
funnier or we're pretty awful. Yeah, we're, yeah. <laughs> you're, we are really bad. bad at what we do. <laughs> do you want to get better? I, I, eh. I, we do get better over time, but yeah, I personally think it's more fun when I, I suck. So, uh, I basically already know where I am and don't really use waypoints that much. And I kind of just like to enjoy the game and figure. I usually don't. What the fuck was that? What the fuck? Please tell me I'm not hallucinating. That motherfucker just went flying laterally. Horizontally, if you will. I'm not sure if laterally. Let's get Joel in here. If we could uh, move the mic over. Joel, is this a full time job for you? Yes, this is a full time job for all. How long has it been a full time job for you? I think since the end of 2012. How old a man are you? I'm 24. Are you guys all about the same age? Yeah, I'm about to be 23 in June. Okay. 26. So this is the, is this really the only real job you've ever had, Speedy? Uh, do you consider working at a grocery store a real job? I consider, well, <laughs> I consider that more of a real job than this, but I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, I would, I would too. If you look at your tax returns, I'm wrong. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> yeah. And what about, you're a little older. Did you, did you do any work that you had to do that wasn't as fun as this? Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I worked in a, in a restaurant chain for five years before, you know, I was like, okay, I can, I can take this seriously. And, make and you were, and thing. you weren't a student. That was your job. You, right. Yeah, yeah. I went straight out of high school and just decided, I was that kid that I was like, I don't know what I want to do. So I'm just going to get a job for now. If I figure it out along the way, then cool. And that kind of happened. You know, I was in a restaurant. This YouTube thing started working out and went with it. What sponsorship uh, opportunities are out there? Is the only way you make money just as a small cut of the advertising? Is there anything else you, you could do to monetize this? No, there's tons of sponsors out there, like headset companies. Um, what are some other ones? Well, you know, there's also merchandising. You can sell, you know, T-shirts from you – know, there's all kinds of stuff. We've been doing this long enough that we have catchphrases and we have, like, imagery that's, Slogans. you know, that's uh, – that's, um, what am I trying to say? That's uh, tied to us? Like, yeah, right, exactly. Pictures of our characters Recognizable like for our characters, right? Yeah. So uh, there's all kinds of other stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the big gaming companies, they'll come to us and, and give us some sort of a deal or early access to a game, stuff yeah. like that. So. What's your catchphrase or one of them? What's the most popular <laughs> one? I don't – actually <laughs> – we have other friends that have really common catchphrases. Yeah. Like, we have a friend who says, all right, in a funny voice. He's like, all right, and stuff like that. Us three, we really don't have yeah, too it's, many it's kinda, catchphrases. Yeah, it's kind of, I'm known right? for yelling at people, but that's about <laughs> yeah, he's it. he's known so for I, yelling madman. Yeah. <laughs> which is a great series. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a, there's a bunch of clips of you just screaming at people? Yes, you should look definitely. it up. It's called The Yelling Madman. Right. He we'll literally goes into lobbies and screams at just screams random things, and then we record people's reactions to it. And right. People love it. Some of the funner videos that we've ever yeah. done, I think. Kill me when I, all I want to My milkshake oh. brings all the boys okay. to the yard, and they like okay. it's better than yours. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Okay. Now the lobby is it's not in the game it's yeah, not so part it's of the game it's just where people are game. queued up ready yeah, to play the exactly. game. <laughs> There's 16 people in the lobby. So the visual get, of this yeah. is like a list of names. It's not even anywhere that is running exactly around. exactly what it is. There's it's a list of names a, and it's him yelling in those at those videos it's yeah. constantly just the entire 4 minute video is the lobby screen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess people can relate to it cuz they've all been in the lobby. Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of a big part <laughs> sure. of what online gaming is. <laughs> Joel, since you were the most recently, you know, a civilian who's become part of this crew, what's the biggest difference from when you were on the outside and what your opinions were of being a guy who did this for a living to now that you do do it for a living? I guess I, I was watching the videos still and I enjoyed them. I don't think anything has really changed. I, it, it is a lot different. I used to my job before this was I worked in a recycling center and I would pick up trash and recycling at 5 a.m. So it's definitely a lot different to play video games for a living and you kind of flip your hours. 
and it's a lot more fun, obviously, but I, I don't think I had any stereotypes that were changed. I, well, I guess I, I'm afraid the public stereotype is one of a negative that's a lazy job. I don't understand why people would like that or watch that, but I know a lot of people that work really hard for Speedy or for any of us to upload videos seven days a week. Think of that as eight hours out of your day every single day. And I know you're playing video games, so it's still fun, but you got, uh, most of the time you're not playing video games. You're putting things in a timeline, you're editing it, you're looking at it, you're listening to it, making sure the audio sounds right. So it's a lot of work. So, so Joel, you must have had these when you were at the recycling center. You had to recycle stuff that people didn't clean properly <laughs> or at the restaurant, some disgusting stuff left on the plate. What's your now version of a bad day at work? I guess equipment failure, things aren't going right. And it, a lot of it plays off of attitude. We're supposed to be happy and entertaining. And I know I feel very lucky to have these jobs, but some days you just wake up and you're not in the best mood or you don't feel like, I mean, any. I think you could have that at any job where you're not feeling the most positive. So things just aren't working out for you in the game or you're not feeling it. So you're not really getting the type of content you want or you don't feel like you're producing the highest quality videos. And that's always frustrating. It is hyper competitive because you're like, it feels like if you're not putting out the best video every day, then you're slowly becoming irrelevant. What do you think, Speedy? Um, like he said, you just, sometimes you have a bad video or well, equipment failure can be very bad, but We'll leave that out of it. Um, if you have a bad video, you go and read the comments and people are like, oh, you're not funny anymore, etc. stuff like that. And that str- makes you strive to make the next video your best video ever. Hey, you're so. artists. You're putting yourself out there. Yeah. You know, it's not always going to work. All right. You've been listening to KYR Speedy, Jehovah, and Joel, who goes by Nobody Epic. I wanted to give you a sense of a subculture, but as I look at the numbers and as I read you the numbers, I think maybe they're the culture and we're the subculture. <laughs> but thank you, guys. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you very thank much you. for having us on. And now the spiel. Turn the page. I'm not a nostalgist. I'm not a technophobe. I don't get off like some people get off on the tactile nature of old technology versus the ephemerality of the new. So I used to work cutting tape in radio. And when I say cutting tape, I mean cutting tape. Little razors, you cut the tape so that two words that shouldn't go together do now. Or like this. Members of a youth chorus all dressed in dashikis. It's supposed to represent the whole world, yet everyone's in a dashiki. <clears throat> Yeah, a little phlegmy, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know why. I got a beer. Becomes this. Youth chorus, all dressed in dashikis. It's supposed to represent the whole world. There's maybe one Dutch girl, but lots of dashikis. Only that edit, the one we just played for you here, that was on a computer, not a physical piece of tape. And I think that's much better. I remember at the old radio station I used to work for, there was uh, some old editors who would say, I don't like this new digital editing. I like the tactile sensation. I like to feel that tape in your hand. You could touch it. And I always said, it's radio. You're not supposed to touch it. You're supposed to listen to it. But in the history of mankind, have we ever really been more removed from our tools than we are now? I do think that the general trend in modernization is that our instruments begin to work more and more by a kind of magic that is removed from the ken of the common user. So once a Wainwright shaped a wheel, then wheels became made of rubber, and we knew the process was called vulcanization, but we didn't know exactly what that meant. And now the entire car, the nerve center, is just run by a computer. Or light, let's look at light. Today, we speak of the LED display. I guess we know what the letters mean. Although, wait, doesn't the D in LED stand for display? What's this? Oh, it stands for diode. So maybe we don't know what the letters actually mean, right? But 20, 30 years ago, light bulbs, electricity, 
substations, megawatts. Maybe most people didn't exactly know what that meant, but there were a lot of electricians around, more electricians than LED-tricians. So that's one measure of the fact that it was more understandable. But 100 years before that, it was all candlelight, which we all understood. And the candle maker, he was a guy we personally knew. He was a guy who was always bitching about how he gets last billing after the butcher and the baker. Those guys couldn't even bake or do their butchery without my candlelight, so I should be first. Buddy, we just came in for a freaking candle over here. Wax off. Snuff your wick. That is the 19th century version of cool your jets or slow your roll. Anyway. I just say all of that to document that as time marches on and technology advances, we get more and more removed from the things we use. But now we're so dependent on devices and tools that we have no real idea of how they work. We don't feel like we own them. We feel like at best we rent them. I used to own records. I used to own CDs, right? You smash the window of my car. Guess what? You now own my CDs. It's easy to grasp. That occurrence would be possibly unfortunate, or the joke on you, because I had way too many Yes albums. Anyway, people assume that it is a proliferation of screens and attention-grabbing devices that produces anxiety, that the eyes are taxed, that the brain is addled. I don't think that's what it is. I think if there is anxiety, it comes from using things that we don't really understand. I mean, sure, no one I knew really understood how to build a TV from scratch, but you understood the parameters. You knew what could go wrong. It could be no picture, no sound, or the thing fell on you. That was about it. Now, again, I'm not scared. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a reactionary. But let's look at an example that just is in the news this week. Hillary Clinton's email scandal. Everything about this scandal speaks of a technology that we do not fully understand, but a technology that is so much a part of our lives that we're attached to it, as we never were attached to, say, the wagon wheel. Please note that last sentence does not apply to my listeners in the Oxen community. Okay, so we're told that Hillary Clinton kept her own email server. All right, let's consider that fact. That fact. All right, let's consider that fact. That fact alone. If we came across that fact without a follow-up sentence or any other context, what would we say to that fact? We'd probably say, I don't know what that means. So then someone would clarify and they would say, okay, it means that she didn't use the official State Department email. She didn't use Yahoo. She didn't use Google. She used a private email that her people privately maintained. What's your reaction now? Would we have said... Oh my God, that's awful. I say that your first reaction just might have been, I I guess that's prudent. Or maybe that's what high profile potential targets do to protect themselves. Or maybe your mind would go to Snowden and hackers and you'd say, that seems like the wise thing to do to avoid a leak. Maybe if you are a powerful and scrutinized person, you would say, I got to do that. I'm not saying that what Hillary did wasn't fairly nefarious or at least antithetical to openness, but we need so much context and explanation of this misdeed because we don't really understand what email is, how it works, or who has access to it. I'll further my case by noting this. Clinton's defense is, hey, I will now release 55,000 pages of email. And I guess we're supposed to say, well, that's a lot of pages of email. Some of us say, that doesn't seem like a lot of pages of email. I say, since when does email come in pages? Pages as a unit to express an amount of email makes no sense. It's like saying the Hawaiian alphabet is a third of a mural long. Or the Merry Wives of Windsor was one of Shakespeare's weaker plays because it had 40% less dramatics. All right, here's a typical email exchange. You ready? What's up? 
What's up with you? Nothing. Bored. So is that three pages of email? Or is that one page? Or can we fit 244 more emails onto that one page? Because there's about 250 words per page in the accepted length of a manuscript, and those, those were only six words? I don't know. Is it three lines that could fit on the next 27 lines of a page? I have no idea. There is no way that our evaluation of the honesty and forthrightness of the woman who could become president of the United States should depend so much on font size. What is a page of email? What is email? Who is Hillary Clinton? Frank Bruni in the New York Times raises a good point. He writes, one of the arguments I frequently heard in favor of Clinton's presumed candidacy was that she'd been vetted like nobody's ever been vetted with no surprises left. Yeah, that is a good point because vetted means scrutinized. Well, she's been scrutinized. Question is, has she passed the scrutiny? I guess you could say she's still here, right? She's the likely Democratic nominee. I guess she passed the scrutiny. She's offering answers and explanations like, hey, I put out 55,000 pages of emails. Maybe she'll get into further detail and say, in fact, those 55,000 pages of emails includes a hectare of lexiforms, 12 farthings and a cubit of iconograph memes. I've read about how these disclosures have hurt Hillary, to which I say, these aren't even disclosures. These are shutting down questions via obfuscatory units of subterfuge. Maybe that is not bad in a presidential candidate. Maybe that is not bad in a president. It shows that she won't be outmaneuvered by rivals. Hey, maybe we should be celebrating the fact that most candidates are felled by an indiscretion. This would be the first time a candidate is hurt by the abundance of discretion. That's it for today's show. Managing producer Joel Meyer easily treated with an expectorant. Joel, I salute your job putting the show together this week in the grandest way I know how. By saying, <clears throat> Andy Bowers protects and moistens the lining of a body's organs, such as the lungs and intestines, and Andy Bowers also helps remove bacteria. But when you get sick, your body often produces more Andy Bowers, which could get thick and stuck in your lungs and airways. <coughs> The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You could know when The Gist is ready every day by downloading the app Yo and subscribing to Podcast. The Gist aids what's known as dry cough or unproductive cough, where no Andy Bowers is produced. A dry hacking cough may develop towards the end of a cold or after exposure due to an irritant. See the gist formulas below to find one that's right for you. And as always, consult your doctor with any questions. Thanks for listening. Right. <clears throat> right, right. I'll start with Ronald Reagan. Ronald. <clears throat> God, I'm really sorry. This must not be fun for you to hear. I'm Felix Salmon, and this week on Slate Money, we're talking about all manner of exciting stuff, including the Wu-Tang Clan and short-selling and patents. You really need to listen to this one. It's a good one. Find us at slate.com slash slate money or subscribe to Slate Money on iTunes.